Welcome to the Secretary Survey, the Irish Pre-Hospital Podcast. Welcome to this month's episode of the Secondary Survey. In this month, we're talking about our EMT colleagues, and more specifically, our EMT student colleagues. And we're going to go through the EMT Objective Structured Clinical Examinations, or for short, OSCEs. Today, I have a really special guest with me. I have a FEC tutor, and from EMT CPC Ireland, I have Mr. PJ Cummins. PJ is an advanced paramedic based in Ireland, and as being a FEC tutor, is well rehearsed in all things EMT, OSCE, and exams. So it's an absolute pleasure. PJ, thank you very much for joining us on this month's episode of the Secondary Survey. Thanks for the introduction, Joe. It's great to join you. I appreciate the offer uh, and delighted to be able to give over any information that people would like. Thank you very much, PJ. It really is a pleasure to have you and your wealth of knowledge is it's going to be shown, I'm sure, in the next 40 minutes or so. So before we get into the main OSCEs themselves, we got a question on Twitter about this episode and someone wrote in looking for the best way to approach the OSCEs even before you go into the exams, but the night before and like the self-help and looking after yourself. What would you recommend the night before the OSCEs or the morning of? Yeah, generally the night before is probably very important because it, it lays out the following day for you. Anyone traveling distances, I would recommend they stay in the hotel or near the hotel that the OSCEs are on because I often find sometimes I'll be talking to a student and they're very tired or they're very distracted and they were saying oh I was worried about getting caught traffic on the M50 or getting caught in traffic coming up so it's very important that you try to stay in or near the hotel it would be the first thing the night before just kind of fleet back through notes I, I wouldn't relish too much on them just fleet back through the notes and like all EMT students they have great hand notes written so they have their OSCE but every student I've ever seen they have great hand notes written beside them telling them exactly what to do and the little key points not to miss as they go the morning of I'd stay away from the coffee <laughs> I try to get some water if you can stay hydrated you can bring the water with you into the holding area and it's important that you know if you have coffee your heart's racing the nerves start to add up and everybody is already nervous before that so the coffee doesn't really help so the likes of water or the likes of fruit or some sort of snack even a comfort snack just to tide you over because once you go into the holding area you're stuck there so i'd recommend just a good night's sleep if you can try to stay close to the hotel get there as early as you can water and a light snack of some description would be a good start to the day brilliant absolutely fantastic information plan ahead and plan your travel and plan your staying and take it easy the night before and just look after yourself because it is a stressful time they put a lot of work into the course and so anything to ease the pressure can i ask as well from a tutor point of view and an examiner point of view can you explain your process or the FEC examiner's process around the exams like support given and help towards the exams mm. i think it's a very important aspect is we're trained to be polite be nice be friendly now we obviously can't tell you the next step in an OSCE and we can't do things like that but we're absolutely drilled to be nice to people to be polite and be pleasant and try to put them at ease I know myself quite often they stand at the door for their first OSCE even if it's their sixth OSCE or seventh OSCE and I'd always introduce myself to them I get their number I confirm their number with the iPad so the number and I confirm their name with them and I kind of have a habit of saying look you've done this a thousand times why couldn't you a thousand and first because they have done it thousands of times so when they're coming in all they're doing is they're just doing their OSCE for somebody else the morning of the OSCE we never know what OSCEs we're getting we, we just turn up essentially we're led down to the area and we're handed a paper copy essentially of the OSCE sheet and that's the only time we actually start to know what OSCE we're doing there's a list of kit we need to get together so we go we get the kit we come back into the room then the iPads land in so it's an electronic marking sheet and we just double check that the marking sheet and the iPad match up, that we're using the same versions. And we put in our own PIN numbers. So we have our own unique PIN numbers. And basically that's it. We look around the room, we make sure that everything that we need is in the room. Okay, so we always double check the kit. And essentially we grab a quick cup of coffee and we head back to the rooms. As soon as the circuit starts, as they call it, we start greeting the students. And it's always the first one, you, you know how they feel. So the first person stands outside the door you know they're going to be really really nervous and it's only as the second and third one starts to come around that they start to relax a small bit and you can notice an actual improvement in the student's skills because they're starting to relax and they're getting in the flow of it on their first when they're standing outside the door they can see what they're coming into so they know it's coming into a carry chest pain or AD shockable or triage or hemorrhage control or whatever it is. So they have kind of two or three minutes just to get the heads in place and get themselves into the frame of mind before they come into us. So basically we are very polite to them. We're very, very nice to them. And we're all practitioners. We're all working at EMTs, paramedics, advanced paramedics, and we're used to putting patients at ease. So, you know, it's, I think it's inherent in any good practitioner 
that you don't have to be told to be nice to someone. It, it should be a part of what you do. You shouldn't have to think, God, I need to be nice to someone. And I think we, when they come into we've all been through the process. So we know what it's like to be standing there going, oh my God, I got to get this, I got to get this. The examiners are they're very nice and very approachable. So that's kind of what we do, Joe, from that point of view. Yeah, that's really good to know. And it is like any time I've been involved from a voluntary point of view with the order model, kind of helping out around us, getting the room sorted or being the assistant to EMT on the day where when the OSCEs need a second pair of hands, it is very kind of, you know, supportive environment. It affects you or they're never there to catch you out or, you know, they're not looking for you to make mistakes that they are supportive in, in any way, shape or form. Before we start, I want to ask you a question. If you had three or four big tips for anyone listening right now, your three or four golden nuggets of information, what would you say to you? Gosh, definitely the first one is when you come into the room, whatever's in the room, use. There won't be additional kit in the room. So if you're near the end of an OSCE and there's something you haven't used, that bit of kit is in that room for a reason. So that's it. So you won't be coming in. There won't be like resource bags and defibs and kit all over the place. There's just the bare minimum kit to get you through that OSCE. So if you walk in, have a quick look at the kit. It kind of puts you in your frame of mind. And when you start your OSCE, just make sure you use all the kit that's there. That will be the first one. The second thing I often find with students is kind of when they should be practicing OSCE, their heads are in the books. So it's quite often I'd be teaching course and I teach for four or five different training institutes. And I go in and I do some OSCE practice and I break them into groups and they start working on it. It's a supervised work. I, I let them work away. But quite often I'll see people with their head in books and head in their in their notes and head in the PowerPoints. And I'm like, no, no, no. You can do all that when you go home. When you're doing your EMT course, maximize your hands on. It is all memory muscle. It really is. It's, it's just memory muscle. So if you're doing your EMT course and you're getting a chance to practice, practice. That would be one thing I'd look at. The other thing is don't be afraid to go at it. As in, sometimes you see students sitting back and they're watching other people doing it, but they don't get in and get on themselves. They watch other people doing it and they kind of sit back and they take their notes. But you need to actually be doing it. You need to be hands-on. It's to your detriment to not be kind of volunteering yourself to do the skills. So where possible, at any given chance, if the instructor or the tutor says to you, look, who wants to go first? Go for it. Absolutely go for it. Make the mistakes and learn from your mistakes. And I think all EMT courses are very, very supportive. Any course I've been to, I've never seen somebody put somebody else down. I've never seen a student put a student down. I've seen students making mistakes. They've sat down and said, okay, where do you think you could have done better? Or where do you think you did well? And it's generally good feedback. And you'll generally find other students go, God, that was pretty good. It's good from that point of view. It is a supportive environment for them to work away in. They're kind of the two or three big ones that I'd be kind of looking at is, is maximize the hands-on as much as you can. And don't be afraid to go first. Brilliant. Golden nuggets of information. You're here to hear first, people. So we might start into the OSCEs themselves. Our first OSCE that the primary assessment OSCEs is the voice science. Do you have any big tips or tricks about this one? Yeah, it's take your time is a big part. It's one that there is a good bit of time in. And where I generally find the students, any student that fails this, they tend to get really caught up with the blood pressure. They really, really get caught up with the blood pressure. They're searching for the pulses, they're sweating, and then once they can't find the pulse, they start to struggle. So it's really, really important that the blood pressure be proficient in it before you come in. Practice as much as you can. They tend to kind of, everybody does the respirations and they do the pulses because it's easy. You know, they're fine with doing that but the big thing is the blood pressure is they tend to get caught up in the blood pressure so sometimes as an examiner what I, I might get them to do is they, they can do everything and come back to the blood pressure so if they want to find the pulses and do their CSMs do the respiratory assessment and then come back to the blood pressure because they're taking a lot of boxes they do tend to struggle with the blood pressure and they're losing time so if you're not very confident or proficient in it you know you can ask the examiner yeah, I do the CSMs you can do the, the crash pulse the CSMs the respiratory rate and then come back to the blood pressure. Most examiners would facilitate that. And the communications is really important. You know, talk to the patient and don't forget your consent. It's really important to talk to the patient, introduce yourself to the patient as if it was a real patient. And once we see that, we know, yeah, there's good communication skills there. So that would kind of be the, the little nugget I have there. As well as that, you can see on the uh, calculator rate, you know, spend the 30 seconds doing that because people think, oh, it's 15 by four, just because step two there says your counter pulsations for at least 15 seconds. People think 15 seconds is oh I can only do it for 15 seconds no at least so if you want to take 30 seconds to do it that's fine if you want to take a minute to do it as examiners we don't mind once you're comfortable doing it so if you have an irregular pulse or the patient's pulse is a little bit slow and you're doubting yourself do it for the minute and the big takeaway from this one is don't be looking at the clock <laughs> because what happens is basically there's, there'll be a clock in the room with the hands on it and you see the, the student and he's, he or she is taking the patient's pulse and going one two three and then they'll look at the seconds they'll start counting the seconds on the clock so one two three four five six seven <laughs> so they're actually starting to, <laughs> it happens they're starting to count the seconds 
Yes. So I always say is pick a mark, pick the 12, take the pulse and look back in roughly what you feel is 25 or 30 seconds. Even if you're going slightly over, you're still going to be that far off. But people get caught up in the next thing they count in the seconds and not the pulse. So that would be a definite golden nugget. And that is a fail. You can see there, there's, there's an asterisk on step three of that OSCE. So all the asterisks so of these critical failures mm. that are marked, they're all in the primary, but there's none in the secondary. Is that correct? Again, no, Joe, you have me on that one. I'm not sure. I haven't checked them. But if you say it, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they're only in the primary assessments and thankfully there's none of the critical failures in the secondary OSCEs, which is good. Excellent. That's brilliant. So we're moving on to medical respiratory patient assessments, OSCE. I remember when I was doing this one, this used to catch a lot of people out because they'd always go down the respiratory route. And then when you'd walk into the room and you were told that, oh no, there's nothing wrong with the breathing, I would throw a lot of mm-hmm. people. So I think, you know, being very open-minded in this one probably is going into this one. Would you say that? Yeah, and thankfully, FEC have started to mix them up because kind of traditional to this, you knew what you were going into. So, you know, it's good now that it could be a diabetic patient, it could be anaphylaxis, it could be a cardiac chest pain, it could be an asthmatic, it could be COPD, which is fantastic. So people now have to go in and start using clinical decisions, which I'm delighted to see. I really am delighted to see that students now have to go in and have to find out what's wrong with the patient and make a clinical decision. So it is a good way. Traditionally, it would have been like an asthma or COPD. OPD. So it's, it's good now that it's changed to diabetics, anaphylaxis, whatever medical, because it is medical stroke respiratory. So it could be either or. In fact, it could even be a stroke or an overdose. So when you go through it, it basically is, it's ABCs, really and truly. It's it's ABCs. You know, if you're, if you're trained in ABCs and keep that structure in mind, you'll pull through it. Okay. Because like you see there, your step three, four, and five is all to do with breathing. Six, seven, eight is all circulatory. Nine through 11 is disability. So you're kind of straight in primary survey ABCs. That's really what it's about. The latest thing is we've brought in auscultation. So it's I think it's a four-point auscultation they like to see done and appropriate oxygen therapy based on patients' SpO2, etc., which is good. Very good. And can I ask, PJ, if someone went totally blank in any of the OSCEs, not just this one, we got a question in on our Facebook page about it. So if a student just goes totally and utterly blank mm-hmm. and kind of looks up and goes, oh, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm just gone blank. What's the best way to approach if this happens? Oh my God, Joe, if I got a pound or a euro for every time I faced that student in the last 15 years, I think it's 10, 15 years and I'm pretty sure it's probably 15 years I am examining with FEC and the amount of deer in the headlight looks that I sometimes get from students and it's I think like as I said to you it's inherent in us to be nice and helpful that's why we provide pre-hospital care we're not doing it for the money we do it yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We, we do it because we like to help people so we're either helping people as patients or we're helping people as students we're helping students as examiners we're always there so if somebody draws a blank and they often do it's very simple we just say listen focus what was the last step that you did and they'd go whatever it was and they say okay so in a real patient what would the next step be so you help them to focus now obviously I can't tell them you know I can't say oh you need to do this next what I would be kind of keen to say okay so if your airway done if your breathing done yeah you stopped as you were kind of getting on with your circulation so do you want to go back to your start of circulation again and that's basically kind of reboots them yeah I was on the circulation that, that's what I've done or maybe they've finished the circulation and they're not quite sure where to go next and they kind of look at you and you go okay you're doing you know you've your A done you've the B done you the seat on what would the next step be so you just give them a gentle nudge <laughs> to, to, yes. to, to move on you know and sometimes they don't know what to do and it very rarely happens but you, you still have to remind them you've eight minutes <laughs> yes eight minutes eight minutes eight that's it. i can sit there holding your hand for the next five minutes but that's not going to do you any good so you'd be kind of you're trying to say look you have three or four minutes left where do you want to go with this and basically that kind of refocuses them because the longer i spend talking to them and, and kind of trying to console them it's their time i'm wasting so i have to be yes. fairly short and sweet in the direction I give them. Another little thing is the OPQRST in the sample. It's so important that they follow the OPQRST finish sample S A N P L E finish because there's nothing more difficult as an examiner where they're starting at what allergies have you what's the quality of the pain when was your last oral intake what provokes the pain what medications are you on what time did they start they're all over the shop and it's hard as an examiner to keep track of what have they asked <laughs> so Yes. Please, yes. please structure your sample and structure your OPQRST. Just deliver them OPQRST and sample. Don't bounce all over the shop. It's so important that you structure that because examiners, we're trying to tick boxes, but if we're hitting and hopping up and down the page, it's sometimes hard to keep track of what the student actually asked. 
So from that point of view, structure your secondary assessment there. So PJ, our next initial assessment then is the initial patient assessment trauma unresponsive. We got a question in again about this one, that what's the best way to approach this? We always feel that this is kind of one of the heavy hitters of the primary assessments. Mm -hmm. And again, obviously there is another critical failure here, which is trauma jaw trust Mm -hmm. that you don't compromise the Mm C-spine. So yeah, what's the best nuggets of information you have for this one? Yeah. So again, you're standing outside the door. You'll see on the door, initial patient assessment, trauma unresponsive. You're running through the scenario in your head. You know that your first thing is going to be your catastrophic airway or catastrophic hemorrhage check. And then you're going to your ABC. So you should be thinking A, trauma patient, trauma jaw trust. That should be clear cut. And it's been drilled into you. I mean, you know, there's nobody has come through their four weeks training and straight into an OSCE the following week. They've had time to practice this. So coming in, as you said, check for your catastrophic hemorrhage. You know, grab the head. Okay, that's a big thing. Hold the head first, then talk to the patient. Because in reality, if this was somebody on a motorbike and you have them on the ground, they've come off a motorbike and you say, hey, how are you doing, bud? And they scoot over to look at you. You know, they've compromised their C-spine. So it is very realistic that they should hold the head first and then hello open your eyes can you hear me the trauma jaw trust essentially you won't be able to do it because it's a real patient for this scenario it's a real patient so it is essentially just kind of putting your hands where you would position them for a trauma jaw trust and you'd explain to the examiner I perform a trauma jaw trust. So you don't actually have to do it. But we do like to see that the student's hands are in the correct place. That is important. So you hold the C-spine, you do a trauma jaw trust, and then you're assisted. Okay, so now you have a trained EMT helping you. So this isn't somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. They'll come in and you can direct them then how to take over the C-spine for you. Good bit of verbalizing going on there. You're verbalizing about the suction, you're verbalizing about the airway. And any airway management has three very, very basic steps. Open it, clear it, secure it. It's the three key elements, be it first responder, EMT, paramedic, AP, we all think the same. Let's get it open, let's get it cleared, let's get it secured. We just have different toys to secure it. That's basically it. So you can see there your steps seven and eight is clearing it and securing it. So that's your sevens and eights. The rest of it then is your breathing. So you're going through your breathing, making sure that it's adequate ventilation, is there a good rise and fall of the chest? And just ask the examiner, you know, what's the rate? And the examiner will tell you it is 16 or it's 18 or it's 22, whatever it is. And then you go through the next steps, which is, you know, steps 10 to 15 by 10 steps 10 to 14 is examining the palpating auscultating checking the chest and step 15 there is considering the oxygen if you feel it's necessary so we've gone through our a we've gone through our b and we're now we're on to our c so it's everything goes back to a b c d really so we're back now we've got a we're done breathing done circulation so again we're checking for the pulse what's the quality again any major hemorrhage that you've noticed would be controlled assess the color temperature condition of the skin and the cap refill so they're all basic c's they follow in a sequence they really follow in a sequence what i normally recommend and i do this with the medicals as well for the circulation is you kind of bless yourself so if you touch your forehead so that's the temperature touch one side of your face that's the condition touch the other side of the face that's the color move down to your radial pulse then move on to your thumb so you're working from the forehead to the thumb and it's a sequence and that ticks all those boxes there of 18 and 19 in a clean sweep the collar is the next thing so you want to place the collar on the patient your loc is your level of consciousness you're going to go through your alpha assess the pupils you'll be well trained on that and then you're making your exposing examine make out your clinical decision request the ls you feel it's important and go through the vital signs so the last step is a kind of tidy up steps 24 29 is a tidy up of the OSCE. very good there's a lot in it but as you were saying there is a lot of verbalizing in it and being that emt support person that's there you have your assistant like they really are good they really are there to help you can i ask again another question that came to our twitter page does the patient get to give you feedback does the patient feedback to the emt student on the treatment that they receive during the hospital? absolutely not and sometimes we forget to tell and i put my hand in the ear i may have forgotten in time that you bring in the patient and you kind of discuss what you expect of them what they can and can't do but sometimes you might be kind of rushing a small bit so the fourth person comes in and they do they say the one we've just done there the patient assessment trauma and the patient says say oh well done yeah, no no you can't <laughs> You can't say that. Okay. So, and it's just, it's just force of habit because the, the person who's a patient is probably as equally as nervous because they're a student EMT and they're thinking they're being helpful. They say, oh God, that was well done. And if that student fails because I didn't think they'd done well done, it can lead to a little bit of, oh, but the students said I did well. So the students absolutely, are told absolutely. under no circumstances should they engage with the student. That's good to know. And as you were saying, the patients are sometimes student EMTs. So you would recommend, I'm sure, that if someone is on their EMT course and they have an opportunity to become a patient at exams before they get to sit their own, obviously it's a great learning opportunity to learn the system, to understand what happens and what doesn't happen and how things are run. Yeah. I'm sure you would agree with and that. And again, getting back to that, Joe, it's something earlier in the game, you asked people the four key points. That was the fourth point was where at all possible, volunteer to be patient it just takes the what happens behind that door out of it 
<laughs> but you see that when they come in, we're very nice, we're very polite. It's a short Oscar, whatever. We chat to them and, and try to get them to relax a small bit. So I think the students see, oh my God, I, these people are actually quite nice and they're, they're not out to get you. We're absolutely not out to get you. You come in the door, it's up to you to lose the points. <laughs> Yeah, so we are very supportive to them, and yes. they sometimes can't believe that we're so nice to them. It sounds like a cliche. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, no, no. I think that's fair enough. They're definitely not able to no. catch anyone. The next two, I think we can bunch together: the medical airway and the trauma mm-hmm. airway, because most of them are ninety-nine percent of the points on both of them are very similar. So I think if you take the two of them together, yeah, and if there's any tips or tricks there, and then basically most of the examiners on this one will ask you to do the skills. So you know, I have a tendency to say that this is a medical patient or a trauma patient, whatever it is. So I, you know, if the trauma patient, we open the airway please so I've told them it's a trauma patient they'll open the air and I say that's fine now we show you how you suction please so they'll demonstrate how to suction and then I'd say okay will you show me how to place an OPA so they go through the steps of placing the OPA then I'd ask them to demonstrate ventilation of the patient so they'll take their BVM and they'll give three or four ventilations and then once that's done I say alright your patient is starting to gag show me what you do so they'll take out the airway and then I'll say to them okay we place a supraglottic airway the patient is 80 kilograms now if I forget to tell them I say we place a supraglottic airway the students will say to me oh what's the weight oh it's 80 kilograms so whatever one that that particular mannequin takes so it is a pretty much a, we, we kind of guide you in what we want you to do in both of those stations and they're pretty short stations in fairness they're, they're one of those ones where it kind of finishes at four or five minutes and you have to find out stuff to talk about without asking them where they're from how they got here what, what training institute <laughs> and you'd be surprised I, I know nothing about GA I know nothing about turf <laughs> Uh, 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 and, and you know once uh, and you just find yourself chatting about things like that because you can't ask specifics of the student very good oh, absolutely and I agree these are the ones that probably end the four or five minutes and you are standing around so there's plenty of time if you do get stuck to catch a breath and go back over oh, stuff perfect. the next two again I think we can bunch them together AED shockable and AED non-shockable mm-hmm. I think the big difference is here you're going to shock the patient in the first one and you're not going to shock them in the second one but I'm sure there's more to it than that yeah there is uh, well there isn't there isn't it's pretty much a CPR you know can the student safely perform CPR and deliver a shock to the patient there's nothing major in it you know people are taught CPR from day one on their CFR course or CFRA so they pretty much come in and they'll do it and what you can have is when you land in we say you might have trained at one institution and they might be using a Phillips machine and somebody else might be using an electronic machine etc so there, there will be two or three different makes of defibrillator in the station so it's up to you to pick the defib that you are used to using okay and sometimes the student come in they grab a defib they're halfway through it and they're like I don't know how to use this defib so why'd you grab it so <laughs> it's the first one I saw alright so you don't know how to use this defib I, I, I haven't a clue okay <laughs> and it, it kind of leaves <laughs> it, it does leave a, a rather sticky situation oh okay so again depending on time you'd say alright they only use the other machine or they're all pretty much the same you know turn it yes. on because it is a question that we got in again through our Twitter page was if the equipment is different in what I've trained with so they've asked about an ECG machine or defibrillator mm-hmm. can they ask to be shown how it works I'm guessing not that you have to pick the one that you've been yeah. trained on it'll never land that you land in and there'll be a machine there that you are not familiar with because the companies that are providing equipment to the OSCEs they're on the circuit for 10-15 years so they know themselves if there was a particular company use a different model they will say here we'll supply this model for our students so that's pretty much how that goes to get to the point I did have a shock most and we'll figure it out we'll figure it out absolutely. No absolutely and then the next two again another two that we can probably bunch together is the adult foreign body airway obstruction and recovery position mm-hmm. and then the paediatric foreign body airway obstruction and recovery position so again this could be broken into two OSCEs the FBAO and then the recovery position would that be a fair assessment this one it? is a killer it's, it's an absolute killer and I know myself when I get this OSCE I'm like oh no <laughs> it actually is two separate OSCEs and, and generally I'm, I'm glad you're laughing Joe because I haven't failed you yet um, uh, but <laughs> not gotcha. yet. As an as an examiner, always when this comes, you just know, you just know that somebody's going down on this one. Unfortunately, it is two OSCEs. It's so incredibly important that they listen to the information they're given. So essentially, when they walk into the room, there will be a patient. So there will be somebody standing up with the examiner. So the examiner said, "Look, this is Fred. Fred was in the restaurant. He's suddenly gone quiet and he clutched his neck." Okay, so they'll go over, hello, can you, are you choking? And the patient will nod that they're choking. And they'll go through the back rows and the abdominal thrust, etc. And then after that, we say, okay, so Fred here has collapsed. So we put down a mannequin and say, this is now Fred. So they'll go through the next couple of steps. So they're then told the patient is unresponsive, lower to the ground, request for ALS to do all their CPR, finger sweeps, etc. And then after kind of a cycle of CPR, we say, okay, this time now when they open the you can see what's in there. So they scoop it out. And we say, okay, your patient is breathing. So what's next? So ensure adequate ventilation, oxygen, 
situation. So you could say, okay, the patient is breathing at 16 breaths a minute. So what's appropriate to that patient? I'm going to put on 100% non breathing and check us. Okay, this patient's breathing is eight breaths a minute. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to use a BVM and then I'm going to check for my pulse. So it's in there. But basically, we would normally say the patient is breathing and it says they're ensure adequate ventilation. So this is where you, you really have to ask the patient's breathing, what are they breathing at? And a, a lot of students kind of forget that. You, you just say, oh, the patient's breathing and they immediately put on 100% non breather. And you're okay, the breathing is eight. What are you going to do? Oh, uh, uh, oh. And you get that kind of... Yeah, so that number is so vitally important to ask. It's a real key yeah, point. because it's step 13 is ensure adequate ventilation. The only way you can do that is by asking the examiner. Absolutely. Then they'll be told, okay, your pulse is present. Okay, and you've been doing your CPR. And at that stage, the examiner will pick up the mannequin, will put it up on the sideboard and I say, okay, Fred, will you lie down, please? So there is your kind of first key that this is a new scenario. So I say, okay, Fred, will you lie down there, please? And then I'd read out a scenario. It could be that this gentleman's phone collapsed in the bathroom or his phone collapsed in the street. Please demonstrate what you're going to do. So they go, hello, look, can you hear me? But in their heads, this is still the mannequin. So as far as they're concerned, they have delivered oxygen to this patient at step 13. You know, they've given that patient oxygen. They've checked his pulse. So they're still on the old scenario. That's why it's so important that they listen. Once that person lies down on the floor again, this is a new OSCE and they tend to check responsive, check breathing, check pulse, recovery position. They don't open the airway and as you can see there, step 17 is the failure and this is where they go down and it's a little bit of nerves, it's a little bit of hyper, a little bit of rushing things. That's where that mistake happens but the dead giveaway is Fred that was sitting on the bed is now lying on the floor. <laughs> so this must be a new scenario. You know, and it's, yes. as the golden nuggets go, if the patient is sitting up and is suddenly lying on the ground, that's a new scenario. Yes, do something. <laughs> Very good, very good. So I guess that OSCE would be one that would catch a lot of people out, I would say. And, and exactly as I said to you, Joe, it's just one of those things, once you get it, you're like, oh... You know, because you know that you're going to have two or three resets. It's not so much you. I think all the other yes. examiners on the circuit is, oh, FBO is on the circuit. Oh, we're going to be here for another hour after after this is finished. <laughs> yeah, it catches a lot it's of people. It's just so in. common. That's the problem. It's just so common. Yes. Excellent. And our last one of our primary OSCEs is the hemorrhage control. Mm. And again, any advice on this one? Again, this is one that has changed because we now have the introduction of the tourniquet on it. So again, yeah, this is a new one. So it really interesting to see. I haven't run this one yet, Joe. I haven't examined it, but it, it is pretty much the same as the last hemorrhage control. Not something we used to have a lot of fails with. I think the big thing is to get that hand up or get the limb up or whatever it is that has the injury to it, that it is raised, raised high. People have a tendency to put it up onto the chest, etc. It needs to up high. So when they're positioned, it's important that they do that. Make sure the pad is on is important. And again, sometimes what happens is that some people just put the bandage on. They don't put the pad. And it's really, really important because step five there is a right pressure, pad and bandage. So if a student comes in and they just put on a dressing and not an ambulance dressing, just a regular dressing, that's essentially a fail. Because if you're going to put on the dressing, you need to have a pad and a bandage. But they put on the bandage and they fail. And if I put on the bandage, you did, but you didn't put on a pad. So pad and bandage is, yes. is important. Yeah. It's a critical element, as you said. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and considering the hemostatic agent is, uh, by the way. And again, once they told the patient is in decompensating shock, they need to react to that and they need to see, okay, this is an immediate transport, okay? Because as far as they're concerned, you know, they think they have the bleeding under control, the patient's lying down, they have a blank on the patient, that or that. But they need to say that this is an immediate transport. So that's step 18 in your second failure. The other thing yes. there is CSMs appropriate to the scenario. So you can do it three or four times. There's no, you, know, you need to do it here, 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 and here. Once the examiner feels, yeah, they were watching to see that the circulation and the sensation of movement was checked adequately quickly we generally take that box brilliant very good now we are moving swiftly onto our secondary assessment sheets mm -hmm. so again there is no critical elements thankfully in these so we're going to start off with our vital science so again very similar to our primary one but just a different set yeah it, it is very similar to the other one again f is easily enough done so you know you check it initially open your eyes talk to me then a low level of pain is perhaps required to the patient and then they just need to identify the output scale whether the patient responded to voice or whether they responded to pain it's important that they don't do the two at the same time and sometimes what happens is they'll come in and then pinch the patient and shout at the patient at the same time so you haven't done it sequentially so you, you don't know did the patient respond to the voice or did the patient respond to the pain so it's important that you sequentially do it okay the patient's lying on the ground with their eyes closed so they're not aware they don't know what's happening you've asked them to open their eyes they haven't opened their eyes so you've applied a degree of pain to them a minimal degree of pain to them and they have responded so therefore the patient must be at pain or perhaps they don't respond at all depending on the scenario they could remain unresponsive so essentially the next 
step there, you'll be told that the patient does become responsive. So the patient will be responsive for the remainder of this. So you're just checking the pupils. So you've been taught how to check the pupils, checking one eye and then looking in the other eye. So they're familiar with that. And most people are quite good at that. They're well trained in it. We would then show them we'd have three laminated sheets with various conditions that you would notice from assessing pupils. So we'd show the student the first sheet and we'd say, can you tell me why that pupil is that way? We get their answer. Then we show them another one. Can you show me why pupils might react this way? And we'd take the answer. And then we do a third one and we say, can you tell me why? Again, we're back in now to our blood pressure. So this is where the things can go sideways if they're not proficient in it. So the examiner might say to you, can you take a blood pressure, please? Some students would ask, do you mind if we take the temperature and come back to it? Now, that doesn't bother me. Okay, so if the student says to me, do you mind if I take the temperature and come back to blood pressure? I'm guessing the student probably isn't the best at taking blood pressure. So I'd say, yeah, that's fine, please work away. So I'd let them take the temperature and then go back into doing the blood pressure. You'll see in the exam, they'd have a yellow bag. So once you take the patient's temperature, they probably probe into the waste hazard bag. It's not mentioned there, but it would be there. But yeah, dispose in appropriate bin. So that's going to be the plastic hazardous waste bag. And then they can go back up and they can start into the blood pressure. And basically that's okay. And even if you get the blood pressure, wrong. If you said the blood pressure was 600 million over 700,000 at 0.773, you've only really lost a mark. You know, if you've explained the procedure to the yes. patient, you've put on the blood pressure cuff appropriately, you've pulsated into the anticubular area, you've placed the diaphragm over it, you've inflated to 30 and deflated it and given me a report. So of that sequence, like 12 to 18, I am essentially just watching the student doing what they're doing. And if they give me an incorrect blood pressure reading, that's fine. You've only lost a mark. But if you followed all the other steps, and I'm happy that this student knows what they're doing. They're getting five of those marks. So if they miss one mark, it's probably not going to fail them. <laughs> but if they seem to think, oh, I have to get the blood pressure absolutely correct because I lose marks or it's a critical fail. It's not a critical fail. You just don't get mark 19. <laughs> that's it. I think that's a very good point because there is a lot in it. You know, you could pass on everything else. You could still get 26 out of 27 by even giving the wrong blood pressure reading. Yeah, I'm not promoting that people shouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. absolutely. We all understand as examiners that this person is possibly not the best at it. And again, the students, they come in different shapes and sizes. So, you know, somebody, they might have a little bit more adipose tissue in that area. So it might be a little bit more difficult to pick up the pulses and to hear. Absolutely. That's really well explained. And our next one then is altered level of consciousness. Oski, any tips on this? Yeah, the ALOC, again, thankfully, this has three or four possible outcomes, which is the correct working diagnosis there, step 17. There's at least three different conditions this could be. Traditionally, it was known as being one particular condition. So people will come in and we're pretty much, oh, this is ALOC. Oh, yeah, I know what it is. It's X. And you're like, okay, you need to go through all the steps as well. So thankfully, they have changed this. There's three or four possible conditions present in this, which is fantastic because now the students have to think, which is brilliant. So again, I know it sounds like an old broken record, but when you start this, when you're told the ABCs are done. So your initial impression, you know, you have an X age male or X age female, maintain the airway, so you want to just head to the chin, assess for trauma, any trauma to the patient and place the patient in the recorded position if appropriate. Now, when I go through this with my students, I tend them to get to do step four at the end because when you're under pressure and you have your patient recovery positioned and you're trying to think out okay I need to put on ECGs which arm is the right arm now which arm is the left arm which is the left leg which is the right leg because the patient is on their side they've rotated 180 degrees so you can get a little bit confused of where the cables and the leads and stuff go so I would typically leave step four until the end really because it just makes the rest of the assessment easier for you yes. other people might disagree with me and they're entitled to their opinion they are as correct as I am but if you leave that recovery position to the end, it makes the rest of this assessment much, much easier. So, you know, you do your AVPU, the correct assessment, that will be as per the response of the patient. You get your sample. So the examiner will generally say, oh, I'm this person's friend or I'm this person's brother, etc. Can I give you information? And you'll get your sample history from the examiner. Put on your ECG, SpO2. So again, when the patient is lying on their back, that's very easy to do. Assess the temperature, pupils. Now, if you think, if you have somebody in a recovery position, trying to get access to the pupil that's most lower to the ground can be difficult. You're bending and you're flexing and you're doing everything else. But if the patient's lying on the back, open the pupil, there you go. You can check for the rash, check the front and the back. And generally we verbalize that because you could have a female patient or a male patient who doesn't particularly want their body being pulled open by eight or nine different students. So, you know, sometimes they'll say, will I check for a rash? And nine times out of ten, no, that's fine. They check for your medical heart bracelet. Again, if the patient is lying on their back, you've got access to the wrists and the neck where if they're lying on their side and that hand is under their head you might miss it so it's important there and your blood glucose again prepare the site you don't actually take it because obviously we couldn't have a patient getting stabbed 34 times in the day <laughs> you don't have a plaster very quick at this uh, pretty much but I, I'd be explaining to, to some people in the FEC office why my patient was hypotensive and required an ambulance 
<laughs> what that happened once was enough for me. So yes, you just prepare the site, do your BGL, your correct diagnosis done. So whatever you found during your assessment and your sample will be there. And it's important that you talk to the patients throughout the procedure, even though they're unresponsive. In reality, you know and I know that hearing is probably one of the last symptoms to go. So patients can often recall conversations we've had whilst managing them. And then you step up and you're thinking that patient is unresponsive lying on his back. A first aid intervention now would be recovery position. So recovery position, would, would, that would be a good time to do it. And even if you forget it and you walk out the door and oh man, I forgot the recovery position, you might have lost a point. Yes. So Yes, absolutely. Unless you lost the sequence of other points as you went along, but most people wouldn't. But you know, when you stand up and you're thinking to yourself, did I do the A, B, C, D, E, F, G, it's all done. He's lying on his back, he's unresponsive. He's lying, oh, he's lying on his back, he's unresponsive. I'll put him in a recovery position. And that generally straightens things out for them. Yes, very good. Yeah. It's a short oscopy with only 18 points, but there is a lot in it. If you go down the wrong way, it could be really difficult to find your way back. Yeah, it's a busy. It is a busy oscopy, yeah. absolutely. And I really am delighted, and the students might be too happy to hear this, but I am delighted that there's now two or three outcomes to each of the scenarios, where before this, everybody kind of knew going in what they were going in for if it was written on the door. So I think it's fantastic that we now have clinical thinking as part of the OS. It's an important element. It gives you absolutely yes absolutely our next one then we'll just move on is cardiac chest pain pharmacology and i think from my memory or talking to people about this people go in and go oh they've chest pain they go straight to aspirin or straight to gtn when actually when you look down like you're considering aspirin administration is actually after 15 points Mm -hmm. so it's halfway down the page so i think this is again a good assessment of talking to the patient and a good medical assessment but again from your expertise is there anything else you'd add to it yeah this is a busy little station and i like doing it because i like to see the different people's styles even though they still have to hit 29 points they have various ways of getting there and, and sometimes it's quite interesting there's you can see some good training that went in because they're bringing in extra little bits and pieces you're thinking god whoever trained that that person it was a good thing to, to bring that student so they're, they're not just following the mundane oski patient assessment they're putting in nice little snippets and you're going oh that was good you know it's, it's entertaining for us but again it is an abc it really is ABCs. You know, your airway is there, your breathing is there. Consider your oxygen. You tell us the dose of it's 100% non-rebreather, etc. whatever it is. Assessing your circulation, your clinical impression, your questionnaire. So they're basic enough steps. We'd, we'd be happy with that. And again, assessing circulation is pretty much have they pulse? What's it like? It's a real, real world. You know, assessing the breathing. Are they breathing? What's it like? Is it faster and slow? You don't want the figures. You just want to know it's fine. And the same then you go for pulse. Is pulse there? Yeah. Is it regular? How is it? Oh, it's a little bit fast. Okay, that's fine. You move on because right, you're going to do all that later on and that's what happens is some people kind of get caught up at their breathing oh what's the numbers what's the figures and all the rest and then when they come further down they're like oh god I, I forgot that okay so it's important that assessing breathing is it there is it adequate we come in then to this you're now focused so you're kind of starting to move into a secondary of types so you place the patient in a position of comfort so you just ask the patient are you happy when you're sitting there would you like to sit on the floor would you like to sit on the table whatever it is and they go no i'm, I'm happy enough providing reassurance is very simple look i'm here to help you and there's more help on the way. That just takes so many boxes. That's a real reassurance of what more could a patient want. Again, we're back to assess your skin color, temperature, condition. So it's kind of back to the blessing again. So you touch the forehead, touch the left cheek, touch the right cheek. So you've touched the forehead, that's the temperature. Touch the left facial cheek, that's basically the condition. Touch the right, that's the color. So it's just a little triangle. And if you kind of keep doing it that way, it won't ever go too astray. You're putting on your ECG strips, you assess the rhythm. So you print it out, you assess it. You now start going back into your OPQRST and your sample. And again, just please follow the sequence of OPQRST sample. Okay, because if you start mixing them up, the examiners are like, what did he ask? What was the last thing? Where is he? Where, where are we going? You're up and down a skill sheet. And this one in particular, we don't have boxes to tick. So we need you to do it in the sequence so we can see, yeah, he or she has done the O, they've done the T, they've done the Q, they've done the R, they've done the S, they've done the T. If you start to bounce all over the place, when you're finished, it's sometimes that, I don't remember him asking, was it radiating anywhere? Or I don't remember him asking, was he allergic to anything? So keep it very sequential. Examiners like it as sequential and it's a good way to have it. So then you're going through your aspirin, so you're ruling out your contraindications, stating your correct dose, your method of administration, how you're going to do it. And again, your vital signs. So again, you don't need to take vital signs. You're just asking the examiner, what's the vital signs? And the examiner then will give you the vital signs required. Generally, they'll give you their heart rate, their pulse and their blood pressure. Blood pressure is the only one you're really interested in because you're now having to move on to give your GTM. So they go and give the GTM, they rule out the contraindications of it. They go with the correct dose, the methods, they list out the side effects. And if I needed to give this again, I can give it up to three times. They then go through the maximum dose, contact ambulance control, which is there, and monitor the vital signs. And again, back to the very basics of any ambulance care is how well you get the patient. 
Okay, so were they nice to the patient? Did they communicate to the patient? Did they chat to the patient? Did they treat the patient like a real patient? It's so important. So that ticks box 29 there. So no asterisks, as you said, but it's a busy little station. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to get done in the eight minutes, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. You'd be definitely going through it standing outside waiting for the bell to go. <laughs> You'd be running through that sequence very quick. Yeah. We'll move on then. Our next one is rhythm recognition. So mm-hmm. you are shown the seven rhythms that the EMTs are to know and you're shown them twice. Mm-hmm. And again, any information on this? Yeah, basically what we're looking at here is the first ones that you're given are kind of static. So they're a printout so you can see them. And it's important if you use the 300 rate, it works quite well with that. Because sometimes you might be shown attacking and you think, oh, that's a sinus. And then you're shown the normal and you think, oh, is that a bratty? So just get into the habit of have a quick glance at the number of boxes between the R waves. If it's three, you divide them into 300. So if there's three squares between the two R waves, well, then three into 300 is 100. So that's a tacky. You know, if there's four squares between the two R-waves, four and 375, so that's a normal sinus rhythm. So if they use that method, it's a handy way of doing it. Because sometimes if it's your first OSCE and you're in and you're a little bit nervous, students sometimes mix up the sinus rhythm with a bradycardia because they've seen a, a tachycardia. So it's in your head. There's loads of time. You have eight minutes. Even on your worst day, you nearly have like two minutes per rhythm to figure it out. So basically, take your time and look at it and see the R-waves. Count the number of boxes between the R-waves. Divide those into 300 just to confirm that you're answering the right way. The dynamic then is one where we have the rhythm generator and we show you on the screen. And that's basically all they have to do is count the amount of R-waves. <laughs> it's a six-second strip. Count the amount of R-waves. Multiply it by 10. There's your answer. So if you're not sure if it's a normal sinus rhythm or it's a sinus tachycardia, that's six seconds. From the start of that screen to the end of that screen is six seconds. Count the R waves, multiply by 10. There's your answer. It's as simple as that. And again, nothing major in it. It's a well-achievable OSCE. Absolutely. And again, loads of time yeah. in that one. Our next one then is our ECG monitoring and recognition. Uh, no critical elements in this, again, thankfully. But again, any other information on yeah, this? Yeah, again, just students wondering, oh, what if I come in and they don't have the monitoring machine that I'm trained on? they will have it there is no problem they, they will have it when they come in just a little bit on this one is the aeds depending on the model it could be set that when they come in it goes straight to the pads so when they look at the screen they have all the cables connected. there's nothing happening on the screen that's because you're in pads go and change them into lead two and then you start to see your screen and it says it there it's step five ensure the aed is on lead two because most machines and you'll know when you look at it, the top of any machine it'll say monitor defibrillator or it'll say defibrillator monitor so if you come into the room and it's a model that you may have used or may not have used and you see defibrillator monitor you know defibrillator when you turn this machine on it's going straight to pads so you're going to have to change it to lead two and vice versa if you come in and you see it's monitor defibrillator you're safe in the knowledge that when you turn on that machine it's going to go to monitor mode that's the model it is it's monitor defibrillator or defibrillator monitor just throw an eye on it and that's it putting on the pads there's no big secrets to it everybody has their own little rhyme some of it is suitable for young listeners some of it is not <laughs> some, of, some of it is not <laughs> but no. the, we all know the variations of the green nelly so we leave it at that <laughs> <laughs> so again you're, you're printing out your screen you're printing out your ECG and you know sometimes the patient it might be a little bit tacky because they might be a little bit nervous so you know you might be saying god it's, that heart rate's 110 yeah that's what it is the patient has a heart rate of 110 because they may be a little bit nervous maybe they're a little anxious maybe they just have some congenital or they're one of tackies but there really isn't a whole lot on that that I can think of brilliant PJ and our next one then is limb fracture yeah an absolute doozy <laughs> yes you know if you're standing outside and you see limb fracture this should be one in the bag it really should be one in the bag so initial assessment is done the ABCs they're all done you're really just going through the process of splinting a limb, really and truly. So you consider your pain relief. And again, you can verbalize the options and don't forget to start with the basics. So sometimes they'll come in or consider pain relief, entonox, pentrox, or metoxifluorine. But you also have paracetamol, ibuprofen, entonox, metoxifluorine. So you actually have four options. And most people come in on the top end. Oh, and consider entonox and metoxifluorine. Now, you still have to give the student the mark because they are pain relief but they're only half of the four so i do like to hear somebody start with oh, different paracetamol ibuprofen entonox and metoxifluorine so that would be it considering the als again once we kind of get an idea of what the patient's pain scale is that would kind of determine the als point of it explain the procedure to the patients it's a very simple thing you will now thankfully have a trained emt with you so they will understand how to hold the limb all that's kind of stuff for you so they'll do all that expose the limb and if there was a wound again you're just verbalizing if the examiner says oh there's a wound there that's fine i dress it end off do your csms again you pick a device that's appropriate the splinting device is applied correctly any padding that may or may not go into place and, and this time sometimes people are going oh this one has no padding 
it doesn't. That's fine. That's the model it is. It doesn't have that. Don't worry about it. Some people will use the vacuum spins. Some people use the box spins. Depending on which you're most comfortable with. I'd try where possible to use the box spin. It's very, very easy to use. Your problem with the vacuum spin is you have to obviously put it on. You have to take out all the air of it. You have to restrap it. There's bits and pieces in it that you might forget when you're nervous. Where a box spin is, oh, look, bit of Velcro is not closed. I need to close it. <laughs> it really is much more self-explanatory than how does this pump work? How do I tighten it? How do I loosen it? Which way do I twist it to let the air in? How do I twist it to let the air out? So yeah, if there's a box spin, just use it. It's a very basic, simple bit of kit. So they pop on that above and below. So you've put on the correct sized spin and you should be measuring that up much earlier on in the game. There's no movement unnecessarily made with the patient. We've reassessed it. It's in its position of function. So it's, it's typically its anatomical position and good communication with the patient. So I suppose the thing here is don't forget the limb fracture. Why is this traditional? your foot it can be an arm okay so it yes. can be an arm so when you're practicing practice both slings and arm splints as much as you practice the foot splints because it is limb fracture it doesn't say a leg fracture that could be an arm and yes. could be a leg and don't walk in there not knowing how to put on a traditional sling because if it's an arm and you can't sling it and splint it you're in a spot of bother absolutely that's a big tip as people do would automatically think it's going to be a leg our next one then helmet removal and collar would I be correct in saying that this is very like our FBA and recovery position that this is broken into two OSCEs. It is, exactly. And you're correct there, Joe. It is two OSCEs. And the giveaway is after step 16, you see big block blocks saying candidate is an appropriate scenario. <laughs> so it's definitely a second scenario. Again, it's great when you're doing this, you have another EMT with you. So you're kind of directing them on what to do. They'll know how to position the hands. They'll know how to do the bits and pieces for you. So you do have a nice bit of help in this one. And again, don't forget to talk to the patient. It's just so important that you're, you're talking to the patient all the time. And again, you'll be trained how to do this. I suppose the biggest step is at the end, just when you're about to take out that helmet, it's really important that we hear you telling the other practitioner, you're going to feel the full weight of the head now. It really is important that the assisting practitioner knows that the weight is coming on there. Okay, so there isn't a whole lot there. And again, step 15, there may or may not be a pad in the room. Okay, so if you're looking around the floor and there is no dressing and there is no pad and there is no bit of padding there, it's not required for this particular patient. So don't be sweating. Going out to the door, oh my God, I didn't put the pad under his head. It wasn't there. If it's not there, you can't use it. So don't sweat the little things. Then you'll be told, okay, so again, you have the helmet off and you told, oh, this is a separate scenario. So that last gentleman was knocked down. He was on a motorbike, hit by a car, whatever the case was. This is somebody who has fallen down the stairs or has fallen off a stepladder, etc. You show me how to put on the collar, please. So there are two separate scenarios, all right? So your ABC is already done. You're asking your practitioner to take up the C-spine control so they have the head, make sure the head is neutral you explain the procedure to the patient, you're measuring up the collar depending on what institution you've trained with, they all have their own little idiosyncrasies in how they measure the collar. Apply the collar, so you're going to pop on the collar and again there's no necessary movement so it's a simple one. Step 25 there, whilst it's not a fail, if you need to adjust the collar, open it. Don't try to adjust the collar while it's on the patient. And I've seen it happen a few times. Now, you know, if that happens, sometimes I might not give the mark because in my opinion, they didn't do it correctly. So if it needs to readjust it, open it, readjust it, close it again. Okay. And that's basically it. It looks like a lot. It looks like, oh my God, I have 27 steps and I've only eight minutes. You've loads of time. You've loads of time in this station. Yeah, and actually, when I was training back in God, 2009, now I don't my EMT course, this was actually my favorite yeah. OSCE, if there's such yeah. a thing. But it was always an enjoyable one because there's a lot to be done with the helmet, getting it off and making sure they don't drop dead. And, you know, there's a lot, but it's an interesting one and it's worthwhile because obviously with the voluntaries and the statutory services, we do do a lot of motorbike racing and we get a lot of motorbike accidents. So it is something that is done. I wouldn't say a lot because thankfully a lot of our patients who come off motorbikes are up and about and have their own helmet off, but it is done in real life. Yeah. A lot more than people would think. And I think it's one of those OSCEs, it's a Gucci OSCE. There's a few Gucci OSCEs and this is a Gucci OSCE because yes. you're kind of, oh, look what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in fairness, if you watch people, oh, this is the one I want to practice. And they practice to, to death. And why? I just like doing it. So another hint, I suppose, from yeah. earlier on in the game is practice the OSCEs you don't like. Yes, absolutely. Practice the ones you feel uncomfortable with because otherwise you get really good at the good ones, but you get skill fit on your bad ones. Absolutely. And on that note, we'll move on to the next one then. So PJ, our next OSCE is our Strider Pediatric. Any tips on this one? Yeah. Again, as I said, the helmet and the collar is the Gucci one. Uh, the Strider is the one that people don't really feel comfortable with. I think maybe perhaps they don't quite understand croup or they don't quite understand epiglottitis and it, and it maybe throws them a 
little bit. Again, it's a patient assessment in itself. You have your samples, etc. It is a nice OSCE to get because it's very straightforward and it'll be a child mannequin, typically a full length child mannequin sitting on a chair. So everything through it is relatively sequential in how you do it. So I've no real golden nuggets on this one. It's one that you're just going to have to learn really it's one of the few ones that you're just going to have to learn and go through perfect our next one then is radio message phonetic alphabet again a nice simple one and one that's often overlooked because sometimes you come in and you give them the ash ice and you give them the word to spell and it's oh god i haven't done this in a long time you know, so again, if I got a euro for every time I heard, geez, I haven't done this in a long time because they're focusing on the cardiac chest pain, they're focusing on the helmet, they're focusing on the splint, you know, they're focusing on the stuff that they think is going to come up where the ash ice comes up, as does the phonetic alphabet. And very frequently it's overlooked. It really is overlooked and people forget to practice this one. So all I'm kind of saying is they'll give you the sheet, they'll give you a minute to read it, they'll give you a pen, they'll give you a paper and you write out ash ice and you fill it in according to the patient's conditions and findings. Your phonetic alphabet, again, another one that people forget because it's not the Gucci, not one they practice that often because I know the phonetic alphabet. Yes, you knew the phonetic alphabet a month ago. If you haven't used it in a month, so it's now exam time. It's like, Jesus, what does Z stand for again? So it is important that this is a very short one, a very quick one, but it's one you need to practice. And you can be making up scenarios for yourself. You can make up ash ice scenarios. You can make up six letter words and stuff them which is good practice but again it's one joke where they, they come in and halfway through the phonetic thing it's like jesus x what is x again do you know and xylophone doesn't absolutely work. not but they, I, I would gladly <laughs> take their s in silence instead of sierra <laughs> <laughs> but yeah and it's unfortunate Joel, it is one that is overlooked quite often because they just forget the simple small oscars they focus on the big long oscars yes and they forget the small ones very good yes our next one then is triage sieve looking at this it looks like you do the triage sieve with the patients and then you have a me time message so again it looks like it's broken up into two oscars on one sheet then yeah this is a new one a lot of changes compared to the old one and i think some people are a little bit worried about this one I haven't examined it myself yet, but I'm sure in the next set of OSCEs when I'm down there, I will be asking questions on it just for myself. Typically with this one, you walk in and there's two patients in the room and they may be sitting or they may be lying. So, you know, the first thing you want to do is, can anybody walk? Traditionally, one of them will walk towards you. Again, in the past, you would have just stuck a green one on and said, okay, I want you to stand over there. That's the safe zone. Where now you have to remember the catastrophic hemorrhage. So as the patient is walking towards you, you need to ask, do I notice any catastrophic hemorrhage? And the examiner will inform, yes, they have or no, they haven't, depending on. And then you're popping on your tourniquet. So a few changes in this one, but it is traditionally two patients and you triage them twice, really. That's how it works. The last one there is, is your meeting message. So you're given a report or you're given a scenario, you're given a pen, you write meat in and you fill it in appropriately to whatever the message is. And again, unfortunately, Joe, like the ash ice, people don't practice it. They don't like doing meat in, they don't feel comfortable with it. So they tend to, I'll come back to it, I'll come back to it. The ones, and you know, and I know from, from the levels that we're at, the stuff that we don't like doing is the stuff we need to practice. Absolutely. And you get skill fade. So skill fade for an ENT student is the same as skill fade for an AP if you're not doing the skills all the time. So it is two scenarios. But tradition, as I said, it's normally two patients when you go in. And once you're finished the first two, the examiner will say, okay, that's fine. Two patients, I want you to lie down again or sit down again, whatever it is. And they reposition them and you start all over again. Excellent. Very good. The next one then, healthcare risk, waste management, glove removal, disposal and hand washing. This is really our PPE and our health and safety, making our workplace safe. Any tips and tricks on this one? Previous, this would have been one people didn't like because they didn't know how to wash their hands and they didn't know how to take off gloves. But given the last two years... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> people are people are experts at this they are really really good at this and again traditionally it was the washing the hands was quite poor it was actually quite poor because people didn't know how to do it it wasn't been reinforced and reinforced and reinforced so it's great now that you know if you look at it if you really look at it from step 11 to essentially to step 26 so 15 steps there is how to wash your hands. In 2022, yes. there's no excuse for not knowing the procedure for washing your hands. To, Absolutely. To be honest. Absolutely. Okay. The rest of it is basically what happens is we're given, as examiners, we're given certain items. Now, obviously, I can't state the items because it's an exam, but we're given certain clinical items that are placed on a table. And we say that the call has taken place here. We need you to clean up the area. So they need to demonstrate that they can safely put away the various items into the various correct storage or bin units really so again I can't say enough of 
book what we use because it, it, it kind of gives the game away but it is clinical items that are used at EMT level anything that's on the table is within the skill set of an EMT to use and all they have to do is put the appropriate items into the correct disposable unit and wipe down the table when they're finished very good and again it does look like a very busy OSCE but actually when you break it down as you're saying the hand washing takes up a huge chunk of it so our next one PJ is our pharmacology selection so on this you have with the recent release of our CPGs at EMT level you'll have 14 medications to choose from in this OSCE so any tips and tricks on this one mm, there isn't Joe this is one you either know it or you don't know it this is it and I think a huge part of the EMT course is learning these medications and you need to grab it from day one absolutely set into it and I think an important part of learning your medications is don't just learn words because all you're doing is rote learning if you don't understand the word or you don't understand the concept you should ask your instructor because once you understand the medication in your own words once you understand the medication, how it works in your own words, if you know how it works, you can know what the side effects are going to be. If you know how it works, you can imagine what the contraindications are going to be. If you know the side effects, you can guess what the contraindications are going to be. There's no secret to this one, Joe, other than you need to know your medications, really and truly. And what happens is people tend to kick the learning. I, I, I kind of have that medication. I, I kind of have that medication. You need to know them. Yes, absolutely. It's such a large part of the course and such a large part of our patient contacts that it has to be safe and we have to be very aware of the medications that we're given at all levels from CFR, EFR, EMT, all the way up. The medications that we're given aren't just, you know, they're not magical fairy dust that we can sprinkle and nothing will happen. That some of the medications do have side effects and we need to be yeah. aware of and explain that to the patients that they could have a side effect. But I absolutely agree. There is something that you just have to learn. You have to be yeah. proficient in it. I think a little study or a little kind of hint for this one is if you get the 14 medications and just get you know the small yellow little cards the flashcards and divide the flashcard into four boxes dose indication contraindication side effect and if you can learn those four basics fairly well you'll get through this particular oski because it limits it down to you know you're going to be asked what the dose is you know you're going to be asked what the indications are you know you're going to be asked what the contraindications are and you know you're going to be asked what the side effects are so if you can learn those four yes basics really well well then you're going to make it through this particular OSCE very good and I think we're hit the last one here now the IM injection ampule OSCE the one that I always ask where are the band-aids yeah <laughs> 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 um, and, and the only reason it's pure nerves the, the students just come in and they're pure ball of nerves the first one or two and they forget to cover the top of the ampule and they forget the bits and pieces and they stab themselves and <laughs> I don't I don't want to put them off it, but, but be careful in there <laughs> so again yes. It's, it's pretty much, you want to read a scenario. So if you're thinking, you know, what medications can I give IM? So you're limited in the medications that you can give IM. So when you're going through this, you can guess pretty much what medications are going to come up. Like the station above it, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight are all, you need to be familiar with your medication. Simple as, you need to know the medication. Medication preparation. So again, you'd be asked what sites would you typically use. You explain which sites you would typically use. You draw them to the appropriate syringe. You plant your blunt needle. You assess it, etc. You select the medication. Break the tip of the ampoule. And again, we typically have a wound dressing or a pad of some sort or even tissue that they can use to break the ampoule safely. Put the tip in the appropriate container. And I think a little kind of important one is this, is just make sure all the contents of the ampoule are in the bottom of the ampoule. Because some people kind of give it one or two flicks, then they snap it off. They throw the top of it into the bin. And then when they're trying to draw up one mil, all of a sudden they're only drawing up 0.75 or 0.8. And where's the rest of it? It's in the bin. So it's really, really important that when you're flicking that ampule or whatever method or technique you use, make sure all of the fluid is in the ampule and there's none in the piece you just dumped. So that would be a big tip I'd be giving people to be sure of that. Drop as the medication. So again, depending on the medication, it would be the dose that you're going to do. Obviously, you're going to put the needle in the sharps container, assemble it, the, the syringe, expels the air from it. Step 19 there, I generally leave the lid. The lid should be on the needle at this stage. Don't try to flick out the air with the drawn-up needle in it because the drawn-up needle has a filter on it, so you have no vacuum. So what happens is the students end up flicking the head of the syringe and the air bubbles won't move. And in fact, now they're making one bubble into about six. So don't flick it until you have the hypodermic needle on. Make sure the lid is on the needle and then flick it. And you'll see it, the bubbles go straight up the top of you because there's no vacuum. It has a straight run up. And make sure the lid is on so you don't splash medication all over the place when you're flicking. Then obviously, it won't be a patient. It's typically an IV arm is basically what's used. But you treat the IV arm the same as a patient. So you get your consent from the patient. You identify, as we said, the sites that you'd be using. Uncover the selected injection site, clean the site, stretch the skin over the injection. This should be old school to you. 
and then the examiner directs to the training aid. Most of the time it's an IV arm. On occasion, it could be an arm pad. So it's just essentially a pad that takes IM injections. So that's what they're looking at there. The rest of it is just given an IM injection. So that's stuff you should have practiced a hundred times. And again, it is a skill that's sometimes overlooked because people can get a hold of splints, collars, helmets, dressings. They can get a hold of a lot of stuff through the voluntaries or through friends or through people they know. But there's not that many people have clean ampules, clean arms and stuff. So it can be one that you need to make sure you've practiced this one maybe a week before you're going for your OSCEs so that you're just 100% sure of it in your head if possible as I said all the other OSCEs there it's possible to get equipment from friends or from volunteers or from people you know either with the various services that are even the private services that can give you a CPR mannequin they can get you a BVM they can get you the bits and bobs but the likes of the airways and the likes of the IM injections they're hard got so just be well practiced on that before you come in that would be the hint for that one brilliant well PJ thank you so much and just again EMT CPC Ireland you actually have videos of all these OSCEs on your Facebook page where you can actually watch them actually being done in a controlled environment which is fantastic training for EMTs who are about to sit their exams or anyone including myself to go back and have a look so again PJ thank you so much for joining us the wealth of information and help especially coming from effect tutor is worth its weight in gold thank you so much we really do appreciate it all I want to plug on it there is you know the videos are free and we've made medication videos are for free and we actually do OSCE prep so we actually we do one-to-one OSCE training and we do group training if people want to do those so if I could get that in somewhere yes absolutely absolutely no you're, it's in it's in <laughs> and again if you want to check it out it's a EMT CPC Ireland on Facebook and again thank you so much PJ look after yourself and I'm sure we'll talk to you again uh, Joe, very I have soon. to say that's the best hour and a bit I've, I've put in in a long time I enjoyed the crack <laughs> Thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you next month. Take care and stay safe. All information recorded is solely the opinion of the presenters and their guests. They do not represent the views of the employers nor associated with any establishment or service provider. Content is not to be taken as medical advice and should not affect established guidelines and protocols. Thank you for listening. Take care.